the Anesthesia Podcast. Hi, so I'd like to welcome everybody to our Anesthesia Podcast today. Um, And I have two authors here of one of our recent papers about the impact of modified release opioid use on clinical outcomes following total hip and knee arthroplasty, a propensity score matched control study. And we've got Shania Liu, the um, first author who's a PhD candidate at the School of Pharmacy at University of Sydney, and Dr. Jonathan Pem from the School of Pharmacy at University of Sydney as well. So welcome both of you. Thanks, Helen. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks, Helen. So um, I was hoping you could just start off by summarising your paper for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, this was a propensity score matched study where we aimed to look at whether the use of these long acting opioid formulations or modified release opioids is safe or harmful when we use it for acute pain after total hip or knee replacement surgery. So this work showed that patients who were given modified release opioids after their surgery were more likely to experience opioid-related side effects, such as constipation or falls in hospital, when we compared to patients who were given immediate release opioids only. So that's a great summary. I kind of want to go into this in a bit more depth. So um, why did you decide to look at this topic? Why was it sort of important? Yeah, I'll answer that one. Um, We've done some work around opioid use after surgery, and Shania and I are both clinical pharmacists. Um, We have our clinical pharmacy hat on, and we've been dispensing lots of slow-release opioids in the hospital. And there was lots of talk about um, how safe is it? You know, it's difficult to titrate. Um, Are people staying on it longer than they should have? And when we did our quality control audit within our hospital, we found it was primarily these orthopedic patients that were using these modified release opioids after surgery. And so we wanted to focus on that patient population and see, you know, are we, we'd heard people say it was probably easier to give on the ward and don't have to do it as as often, but we were also concerned about any harms. And so we led us to get some of the data from our own hospital to see, are we doing more harm to our patients or does it not matter? And it was kind of that, you know, the stuff we'd seen in clinical practice that led us down the pathway of doing the study. I think that's what's fantastic. And I love in your introduction how you talk about why modified release have been used in the past. But as you raised, Jonathan, those concerns that we have, and for me, kind of the difficulty in titrating, and also when your introduction talks about how long do they really last? Mm. Is it 12 hours? Is it slightly less? And that, to me, was really surprising. And um, so you sort of say that you'd used it quite a bit in your clinical population and in your study how sort of what sort of proportion of your patients were using those kind of extended release modified release opioids yeah of course i can answer that so in our patient population almost you know three quarters of these patients were given modified release opioids after the hip or knee replacement surgery that they received so clearly not a small proportion there and definitely some widespread use that we're seeing in this population of the modified release opioids. Which I think makes your question so important, doesn't it? You'd seen it yourself in clinical practice and then it's really widespread. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how you actually conducted the study? 
Yeah, of course. So we analysed our electronic medical record data from three metropolitan hospitals here in Australia. And we looked at patients who had undergone hip or knee replacement surgery and were given opioids for their post-surgical pain. We then divided these patients into two groups. So those who were given modified release opioids, plus or minus PRN immediate release opioids, compared to those who are given immediate release opioids only in hospital. So as we know, with all observational studies, the main issue here is compounding. Uh, confounding. So to address uh, potential confounders, we used the propensity score matching to match patients uh, in the immediate or modified release groups on a one-to-one -one basis. And this allowed us to address for potential confounders, including opioid dose, previous opioid use, alcohol, tobacco use, comorbidities. So uh, as a result, when we then compare these modified or uh, immediate release opioid groups, we can be more confident that any differences between these groups um, in terms of opioid-related side effects are actually due to that modified or immediate release opioid formulation because we've controlled for everything else. And I think that's what such a strength of this paper is you really did think about, I suppose, with your clinician hats on, all the other things that might influence whether somebody would have side effects from opioids or why they would be on those. So, I mean, for us as a journal, we loved kind of the methodology here. And so for you as the researchers, what other sort of standout results that you found? Yeah, look, I think we were just excited that there was a difference. Um, we were kind of weren't sure which way it would go, but from us to have more constipation, more risk of in-hospital fours in the modified release group, they're not in hospital for very long, and you're already seeing these differences in outcome. And those to us are clear signals that uh, modified release might not be as safe, um, that there are harms associated with it, and we should be reconsidering how often we're using it and perhaps using that immediate release more often in this post-surgical space. And I think I think the the kind of side effects, especially things like falls, when actually, you know, the, these are people who have, you know, had the surgery for mobility in the first place and they're supposed to be in a really safe place after surgery. Having anything that leads to kind of potential harm to this population is really important. So again, I thought that was really surprising. Anything else that sort of surprised you in the results or you were, um, was something you didn't expect to see? Um, I'll just add to what you were saying about the fours. So we were interested that they actually had longer length of stays because of that. So people in the modified group seem to be in hospital for three days longer, which is, has a large financial implication. And that's a lot longer than any of us thought. Like we thought maybe we'd have more side effects, but probably go home at the same time. But that wasn't the case. They were staying in longer, taking longer to get their pain under control. Um, for me, one of the surprising things was also our slow-release opioid used primarily was oxycodone with naloxone which is an unusual combination, oh. naloxone being an opioid mu antagonist, but its bioavailability is less than 2%. So most of it doesn't get absorbed. It just stops opioid-induced constipation. That's its whole point. It doesn't get absorbed, or if it does, it goes through the first-pass uh, metabolism. Um, so it doesn't go into the brain. It doesn't impact the analgesic effect. And so you think if you're going to be on naloxone, you should have lower constipation. Yeah. You should be blocking those opioid receptors in the gut. Um, but we didn't see that. 
that all the patients on naloxone, they had higher chances of constipation than those on the immediate release. And that's what, that to me was surprising. You know, if they were exactly the same, at least I could say it's no benefit, but actually it appeared they had more constipation. And that's the reason you're using like the more expensive drug and the, you know, that's why you're choosing that drug. And to see that I agree is, is completely the opposite of what you would expect. Mm. And Shania, for you, was there anything that sort of surprised you or you found sort of different or interesting that you didn't expect from this data? Mm. So I guess the main thing for me was how widespread the use of modified release opioids remains. So here in Australia, and I'm sure in the UK, we have position statements and guidelines uh, advising against the use of modified release opioids for acute pain after surgery. And yet, as we saw in this data, it's clearly not been translated to practice as of yet. So that's why I think, you know, platforms like these are so important to really get the message out. We have hard data to show that the modified release opioids do seem to be increasing the risk of harm. So, yeah, that's another takeaway message from this. I think you're right. And I we're quite... We're quite lucky that um, Australia has kind of led the way in how we think about modified release opioids. Um, And we're a little bit behind in the UK, um, but we have had um, a position statement out by our sort of faculty of pain in our Royal College, really echoing what your Royal Colleges have, what your colleges have talked about in the last few years. So, yeah, I agree. We've got all this advice to say, do you really think you should be using these medications? And actually, they're still sort of very widespread. I know for us, there was this whole push sort of in the early 2000s to be using modified release opioids for enhanced recovery programs for hips and knees. And there was this big kind of you can get them out of hospital faster. You can kind of help their pain. It'll be better for them. They'll do well. And actually, what you've shown, especially with the length of stay, is that is that the absolutely the converse yeah we've had that similar story i think a lot of us work events uh, modified release were better um whether that was from drug companies or um whether that was just from personal experience um, but it is now showing that perhaps that convenience um is really taking away some of the monitoring that we should be doing and it might be giving people more opioids than they should be getting i think that i think I think some of it came from a place of good, didn't it? I think we thought, mm. oh, well, if you need your tablets less often per day, and, you know, we were all felt from a, a kind of first principles perspective that these medications just didn't have those peaks and troughs in kind of your dose of opioid, and that felt like a really good idea. But it feels like from what you saw in your data set that actually that may or may not be the case but also the consequences of those are significant because, as you say, Jonathan, it might be we're actually giving more than we probably need to. Um, Absolutely, and we saw that reflected in the data as well. The patients who, uh, before matching, uh, who were in the modified release opioid group did receive a significantly higher opioid dose than those who are given immediate release opioids only. Obviously, we matched for that in our propensity score analysis, but it was interesting to see that before we did the matching. Exactly. And what I love about this paper is you've 
presented quite a, a lot of data. We've got kind of the headlines that you've told us about already, but there's lots of other interesting aspects within it. I mean, for me as a sort of pain physician, I was just genuinely surprised at the proportion of patients who were on gabapentinoids along with opioids and the proportion of patients who were on benzodiazepine medications along with opioids as well. So I'd really encourage the listeners to kind of not just look at those headlines, but actually go down into the data that you've presented, because there's quite a lot of interesting things kind of within what you present. And so I wondered whether there were some sort of big take home points from this or what you think the impact of your work really is, because that's where science is important, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's, um, I think I've hit the nail on the head. We've all come towards this with good intentions. We all want to do what's best for our patients, but it's good to be evidence-based. It's good to see the data, monitor how we're going and actually ask ourselves, is it doing more harm or is it doing more good? And so I think what this shows is that when it comes to pain, um, slow release, modified release, it takes away some of the autonomy from patients in some ways that when you're giving the slow release, it goes regular and you're not getting that regular feedback that you'd normally get. And I think with pain, sometimes we need that feedback. We need to know, is it working? Do we need to use higher dose or can we use a lower dose? And I think immediate release really helps, particularly at the start. You know, we, If you're not meant to have this pain for long-term, then you don't want to be on anything long-term. Um, I will preface that slow release might have a use in chronic pain, but that's a different cohort here um, in this acute pain space. We want, we kind of need to know how things are going. We don't want to hide any of that feedback. So my thoughts is that slow release in this acute pain space is probably hiding more signals than it's helping. Um, and we should be considering immediate release. I know people want to keep that pain under control, but I think as well, we still need to have that feedback of is the medicine working or perhaps the pain's getting better and we don't need as much medicine as we used to. Yeah, that's a great take home point. Um, and Shanaithi, anything else that you kind of have taken away from this to take back to your clinical practice? Yeah, absolutely. So completely echo the points that Jonathan's made there. In terms of uh, clinical practice, our you know first uh, inclination is always to try to provide patients with the best possible care. But I agree that we need to ensure that what we're doing is rooted in the best possible evidence that we have and this research showing that modified release opioid use might actually be doing our patients more harm than good um, is kind of a signal for us clinicians to consider whether or not our current practice is really providing best possible care perhaps we could be considering um, giving patients immediate release opioids uh, more rather than modified release opioids after their surgery, allowing patients to titrate their own pain management as they need after their surgery. Perhaps they need more when they're doing physiotherapy exercises. Uh, perhaps they need less when they're resting in bed and not moving as much. So giving patients back that autonomy uh, is another take-home message that I'd like to emphasize. I mean, I think what you're saying is really that sort of panacea of pain medicine that we always keep talking about which is personalized medicine you know tailoring what you are giving to the patient and if they need I loved it how you said if they need it when they're doing physio and this is what we see all the time isn't it you know people when they're doing sort of really important functional things to get those joints back up and moving so they can get home 
they will need a bit more medication. Um, but actually, as you say, when they're asleep at night or kind of in bed having their dinner, do they really need that higher dose that an extended or modified release opioid would sort of give them? So, yeah, I completely echo that as well from the other side of the world. So. I just want to say again, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for choosing us to publish your really important um, piece of work, um, which I hope is going to kind of convince people out there that perhaps we need to think again about modified release opioids, especially in the hip and knee kind of sphere of care. So thank you again. And um, I wish you a very happy evening in Sydney. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. It was a pleasure. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>